Welcome to The Last American Vagabond. I've got an important special spotlight discussion today for you. As you guys know well, I've discussed medical kidnapping and the, and the peripheral topics around that for a long time on this platform, something I've been very passionate about. We've talked about chemotherapy being applied in the same way, vaccinations, even things as ridiculous as antidepressants. And even one of these conversations we've gotten into, there's a valid concern from a parental pos position in regard to what these things may do to their child. If there's any consequences, whether the hospital is aware of that, whether they care, and the bottom line being in my position that it's always been the, par the parental right to make these ultimate decisions. And obviously in the age of COVID-19 and the biosecurity state, it's gotten a lot worse. And I think we've all seen that in, in a lot of alarming ways that have overlapped with things like blood transfusions and, and many number, any number of different things we've seen over the, the rise of the biosecurity state. So joining me today is Hope Schechter here to discuss a, another example of this, and, and hopefully by our conversations and getting this some reach that we can stop and seemingly an act of medical kidnapping in process. So thank you, Hope, for joining me today. I know this is a hard conversation, so thank you for having the courage to talk about it. Yeah, thank you so much for being willing to share Autumn's story. Absolutely. I think it's important, you know, for obviously for Autumn and her health, but for you and your family and for other people out there that are in similar positions that don't have any way to get any conversation out or have no resources or wherewithal. And I think the, the problem is that post the COVID-19 conversation, a lot of these hospitals have gotten exponentially worse in the sense that it's almost that they've lost touch with what their real purpose is. And it's not just yeah. about the medical treatment, but but you know, having the, the conformed consent and dealing with the families and, and having you be a part of that treatment. So, you know, go ahead and get into, to start off your background, as I understand that you've got some medical background and, and, you know, how this started for you. And then, you know, the kind of the beginnings of the, you know, where this started in regard to the treatment and for, for Autumn. Sure. So I'm a marriage and family therapist. I also went on to become a functional nutritionist. But um, in terms of my uh, background working in the medical field, I actually worked uh, at Lucille Packard for a couple of years. Um, uh, and I, you know, familiarized myself with teaching hospitals at the time. Uh, this was a long time ago. And um, then I later went on to work in addiction treatment. So I saw a lot, I saw a lot around uh, medication management. Um, and so so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar, uh, but I am not necessarily considered like a medical professional in terms of being a nurse or a doctor, but um, I'm definitely uh, kind of aware of how, of how it all works. So um, when uh, my son, he got diarrhea uh, probably about a month ago, and um, he was fine. He was in great spirits, uh, but um, probably after three days, uh my daughter started to complain that um, her stomach was bothering her, but she couldn't go to the bathroom and she pointed to her colon. Now we're fire victims. So she does have a sensitive nervous system. And um, I thought, well, this could go either way in terms of getting what my son had, or, you know, in the past she's had some constipation um, and just having a delicate const constitution. Um, so uh, we kind of took a, a wait and see and, um, and then the next day she wound up throwing up and then she uh, began having diarrhea every 20 minutes um, around the clock. So no real sleeping. And so after three days, we decided to take her to urgent care where uh, they heard about her brother and they said, um, you know, you can go home. It's just a stomach bug. 
Um, so two more days go by and we're still having the diarrhea every 20 minutes. And um, we take her back to urgent care and they mentioned, mentioned something called intussusception, which is like a, an intestinal or colon prolapse that um, uh, usually is uh, rectified by the emergency room administering a, an enema. And they do not uh, diagnose this at urgent care, uh, so you have to go to the emergency room for the CT or ultrasound anyway. And when I looked up the uh, symptoms, it was diarrhea every 20 minutes and what they call jelly stool, which at that point, she'd had diarrhea for so many days that it almost seemed like dry eating, but the other way around, you know. Um, and so I thought that the jelly stool um, uh, description fit as well. We went to the emergency room and um, they told us that she did not have intussusception and that she had an E. coli infection, but they do not treat pediatric E. coli. And so we would have to go to the closest children's hospital, which was Lucille Packard. Um, and for me, given that I've worked at a teaching hospital before, I didn't really want to be in an environment with students um, in charge of the care of my child. So um, I wasn't thrilled, but... Um, you know, when we were at Dominican, they had been consulting with uh, with Lucille Packard, and they described um, basically the way that they would, they, they initially said it would be like fluid management. So the description of the syndrome that they were describing my daughter is having is called HUS, and they say that the, um, the E. coli releases a, a toxic byproduct as it's broken down, which impacts the kidneys and um, can start to affect, affect their functioning. And so <clears throat> the way that they uh, kind of attempt to uh, reverse that is to administer diuretics to flush the kidneys uh, pretty aggressively. So um, right off the bat, Lucille Packard is telling them to administer a medication called Lasix. Uh, I'll go on later to discover that uh, Lasix does carry the uh, risk for um, kidney injury and kidney failure. So at the time, I, I didn't know, um, and it sounded like the explanation maybe made sense. Um, but really, when we're looking at HUS, they don't actually have a treatment for it. It's just a procedure to maybe try to reverse what they call the progression of the disease or the progression of the syndrome. So um, she had been urinating just fine uh, prior to us going to the emergency room. I was actually surprised because at urgent care, they had wanted her to separate her stool from her urine to test it. So we weren't able to because she's four. Um, and so when she goes, she goes. And um, but my husband had kept the urine cup before we went to the emergency room, and he was like, we should get her to fill this up. Um, and I said, well, I imagine after five days, even though we've been pushing fluids, that she'll be pretty dehydrated. Um, and he said, no, like, she's definitely been peeing just fine, and she can definitely fill it up. And, and she did. She she was able to fill up the, the urine test cup. And... Um, and she was, you know, peeing normally. Uh, and when they administered the Lasix, they told me that um, often uh, it's supposed to work within an hour, but many patients don't make it past 20 minutes before they have massive urine output, and they often don't make it to the bathroom. So uh, we witnessed that, is that within 20 minutes, she had a lot of diarrhea, but a lot of urine. Um, and so I remember kind of feeling in my gut, like, that seems... Um, like her body has been under assault, uh, from an infection and that seems really forceful to, um, to kidneys that might be upset already. 
but you know, at that point, they they wanted us to transfer, uh, and um, they had already gotten the ambulance prepared to to transfer us to Lucille Packard. Um, what, and so, why did they want you to transfer at that moment? Because they they don't treat pediatric E. coli. Right. So they were basically okay, right. just prepping us to get there, and we're told to administer Lasix. Okay. Um, so when we she had been wearing cloth diapers because diarrhea every twenty minutes. We live in a pretty mountain rural area, um, and. Uh, you know, you can't pull over, <laughs> like to go to the restroom. So um, she'd been wearing cloth diapers. Um, and so even though she potty trained many years ago. Um, and so we, by the time we got to Lucille Packard, she had actually soaked through her cloth diaper and her pants. Um, and so she was still having a lot of urine output. And so when we got to Lucille Packard, um, eventually, uh, not even eventually, within a very short period of time, once they started their more aggressive protocols, including including the Lasix, um, we see her kidney function decline and she even reaches kidney failure. Mm. So um, I'm happy to, to go on. Yeah. Ready. Well, well, in general, I just have a couple of interesting questions on the side, but just, just I mean, I, I've actually dealt with this in regard to my grandfather who passed away mm -hmm. in a similar situation being given this, and there was the, the exact same circumstances where it mm -hmm. became an immediate dilemma of whether or not it was necessary to continue the treatment or risk kidney failure right. and, and death. Right. I mean, so right. it's this balance. I, I, I quite frankly, just exacerbation, just I can't, I'm, I'm beginning more and more to see how frustrating there's far too much of the benefits outweigh the risk kind of a game in a lot of this stuff when there's very clear risks involved with these treatments. And then it becomes this balance as opposed to just trying to find treatments that actually are effective without having negative side effects. Most of which, in my opinion, just to put my personal point on it, are natural purposes that they tend to not lean into because it's in a hospital. But I just want to point that out that I think it's obscene. It's, I mean, well, just from your personal perspective, and this is, I think, what we're going to get into, do you even agree with that part of the treatment? Did you think LASIK was necessary at that point? I guess I just felt like, um, yeah, at that point, my daughter was saying, like, help me when she would have diarrhea. So I was like, mm. is, and I didn't know enough about Lasix. You know, you hear diuretic and you think, oh, okay, it's going to, you know, kind of flush her. Um, I was a little alarmed once I saw how rapid and massive the urine output was. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought, like, what, what else are we going to do here if this is, if this is, you know, our only option. Mm -hmm. um, and, and given that then it keeps getting reiterated once we get to Lucille Packard that this is the protocol. Now, they're not necessarily calling it treatment because I don't think it treats the condition. Right. I think it's an attempt to flush and maybe preserve the current state that it's at. But they even said to us, like, you know, HUS is a roller coaster. It goes up and down and back and forth. And some people never even get their kidney function back and some only get it partially back. And, you know, at the time I started thinking, well, is it the side effects of the medication that results? Like I'm sure a certain percentage, like they actually didn't respond well to the treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe they have kidney failure or kidney injury because of the, the aggressive treatment that they were under. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think that I necessarily agreed and I didn't have the best understanding of maybe their model at the time once we mm. were beginning. Um, but right. uh, as I'll go on to describe, they don't really let you grasp the model, right? Like they're telling right. me like, don't Google this. Like, um, you know, they're saying things to me like, right, as, as soon as we arrive, they're saying, um, you know, she'll be our case study of the week. And, um, 
and uh, that, you know, she, we want you to know that this is a very serious condition. She could die. And instead of like entering the hospital and being like, you know, um, technically the syndrome can be life um, threatening and we want you to know that it, it's serious, but that we are going to do our best to uh, take care of you. And um, to, at each step of the way, we'll, you know, try to assess uh, where she is and, and how we can prevent it, her from further declining. Right. Right. But that was not how it was approached. A more fear-based model, it seems, right? right? The idea, right. Right, Right. just the the intensity in general. And I've always kind of said as a therapist that, you know, people who work in places like an ICU or, um, you know, pick you or or whatever um they are probably attracted to the intensity there is something in them that sort of feeds off of that and i'm sure that's related to a lot of a lot of things in their life um but that that was very uh obvious when we arrived and i even asked people like can we bring our nervous systems down because when they were saying things like she could die in front of my daughter right she is screaming hold me like um you know, this is adding trauma. And I'm expressing to them that when you're pumping a child full of adrenaline and cortisol, no matter what your protocol is, like she is not going to heal the same as if she is um, in a calm and a regulated state and in a regulated environment. Hmm. Right. I mean, I I quite frankly don't think that's even in their wheelhouse at this point, which should be, right? I mean, that's obviously a very valid and important part of any healing process. I mean, it's, it's amazing that we don't factor that in. I mean, just the cortisol alone will shut down your immune system, right? I mean, this is why, I imagine while you're mentioning that. Well, right. before we go forward, I, again, you made the point, now we shouldn't skip past that, which you made, you mentioned before we went live, the case study part, which by default means to some level that that's going to be experimental. I mean, I guess mm-hmm. that's not the way they would frame it, but you're, mm-hmm. it's now going to be used as a, as a, I mean, I, I wouldn't want my treatment of anybody in my family to be anything other than what is best for that person at that moment. And not right. some kind of, you know, we'll use this to go forward and learn from which is ultimately what that means. I guess that's what happens at a teaching school like that. But yeah, I, I get your concern with that, but I want to ask you two things really quickly. One was just briefly, if you could give me an insight into, you said fire victims. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that actually mean? If just briefly, like how that overlaps the treatment, is that anything with the immune system? Can you give me some insight into sure. what that means? Yeah, I feel like, you know, her constitution has been um, a very uh, sensitive nervous system since she was, uh, she was about one years old when the fire happened. Um, we wound up displaced. We lost all of our belongings. We were able to sell the structure, um, but uh, everything was considered a biohazard. So um, they, you know, deem it like from uh, smoke, soot, and ash damage. Uh, you know, I think there were 900 homes that burned down in the area and about 20 in our neighborhood. Um, and it was like three down on either side, just completely burned. And so our, our home filled with smoke and soot and ash. Um, and when things are burning, they're also, you know, burning like the homes are made of, you know, not, it's not just like trees that are burning. It's, it's wildly unhealthy. And, is yeah, your point. It's, yeah. Yes, exactly. And so they said it would be, you know, terribly unhealthy for my daughter. And so, right. you know, we lost all of our belongings. We wound up in temporary housing for a long time. And, um, and so, uh, you know, she didn't have a, a lot of stability during that time. And I think ever since then, she's been very sensitive. She always reads the room. Mm. She reads what's going on because we were very stressed at that time. We didn't know if we'd have a home. I mean, um, I think the home was, um, 
uh, without running water for a while. So it was like, what if they, you know, want us to move back? What if insurance wants us to move back and we don't have water? Um, So things like that, where I think she was, she's always been uh, sensitive to picking up on what's going on. Right. I see what you mean. So, yeah. And so I think her nervous system responds maybe a little more to that than like my son, who's younger. He didn't, he didn't go through that with us. I'm I'm glad I asked actually, because I was thinking more of, which it sounds like there is also a level of, you know, whatever the actual health damage was there, but there's a psychological damage, which is I think very important to what you're pointing out and to the fact that she's picking up on very clearly the negative energy being put forward by people that should have some, at least some bedside manner. The the other question I had for you was in regard to the E. coli and you mentioned HUS. Now, is the, the, what was the diagnosis there? You said it was an E. coli infection, right? What you said? Right. Originally, it's a it's an E. coli infection, but I guess the syndrome is that not everybody's kidneys respond the way that Autumn's did, right? Like my son, he didn't get like this, uh, you know, kidney issue where his mm. kidney functioning is declining. I, the, you know, the numbers um, definitely. I felt like what they were expressing, I could see in the numbers in the labs, but, um, you know, they, they got to a, a more alarming state much later on. Um, and so, uh, but they don't really know why, like they don't know why some people respond that way. Right. Um, and so that's why they call it a syndrome because they don't, they don't really, and that's why, you know, it's a protocol. It's not really a treatment because they don't have the the root cause. They don't understand right. why it's not, they're not treating the E. coli. And even when we got here with the E. coli infection, they said, Oh, that has to run its course. That just runs its course. So at this point they're just kind of focusing on, um, this syndrome and, uh, how it's a response to the E. coli infection. Okay, so th- that's actually very interesting and relevant. I think that so th- so there's really not a diagnosis. There's just symptoms that they're categorizing as the syndrome, right? Which is ultimately yes. what that means. Interesting. So okay, so the, I the other question then, and please feel free to elaborate on that if you think there's more to that point. Mm-hmm. The the do you, what is the likelihood? And I guess it's really just your opinion, but I know that one of the most it's very common for people to pick up infections after they go to the hospital. So you came there from an, an illness that was kind of a Passover, it seemed, from your son. What do you think the likelihood was that the, the actual E. coli infection was due to the hospital set, setting during a lower weak immune system? Is that something that was even considered? You know, not really, only because like I... I did feel at the time like it lined up with my sons. Um, for mm-hmm. me, I guess it's it's always been much more prominent. And as you'll see as the story continues, that she her decline really in the kidneys was um, very much correlated with all of the medications that have the risk of kidney right. injury and kidney failure. Kind of so, where I'm going with that, right? The idea yeah. is like this is yeah. more of the problem of the treatment than anything else. But please, please continue. Right. Go ahead. Yeah, and especially just when they mention that so many children, um, not so many, but that a percentage of children go on not to um, regain function. And and mm. and you'll see that you know even when she um, resumes urinating, which is after a whole host of, of, of really, really um, terrible events uh, that they want to start the protocol again. And so, um, you know, you, I can discuss sort of how that plays out when we get there. Yeah, well, go ahead, pick, go ahead and pick up where you left off. So now you've moved to the, the teaching hospital and the aggressive protocol. So go ahead, where, yes, where you left off. Yeah. So um, so we begin uh, the the protocol that they want, uh, which is a combination of Lasix, um, it's this cocktail with diurel, and then they want to eventually add something called aminophilin. Now, at this point, I'm saying, 
my daughter has never even taken Tylenol before. She's never been sick. Um, and so uh, can we pace these, right? Because you often learn that most medications aren't studied in conjunction with one another. Um, so you don't know how they're going to interact. Um, and also, if she got a side effect, I wouldn't know what it was from. And so um, I got told that I was, you know, resistant to her treatment and, um, you know, that they they had her safety in mind. Um, and so... I did proceed with the aminophilin, um, but they, um, uh, within a short period of time, she actually wound up throwing up blood. And I think, yeah, I think they initially kind of um, maybe dismissed it or just said, well, it's nausea. Um, you know, that could be a side effect of the E. coli, which I stress to them other than the first time that she threw up um i think she may have like dry heaved a couple times very early on in the e. coli infection but uh she had not been throwing up for days before we got to lucille packard there was there was none of that mm-hmm. um and so um so i did not feel that that was accurate and the second time that they did that sort of cocktail with the aminophilin she threw up blood again and so they stopped the aminophilin um, so clearly they, but, they also at least suspected that might have been the culprit. Right. Yeah. Um, and so and so we continued on for a bit with this um, kind of more megadosing of the Lasix with the diarrhea. And you, she goes to basically no urine output. Um, you can see that the decline is to, to nothing. And they come to me and they say, well, this isn't working. Um, and so our next step is for you to move to the ICU for a constant Lasix drip. And can I ask you a quick question? Just really quickly interject. You're telling me she was on Lasix and no urine was coming out yes. already? Yeah. My God. Yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a, as far as, I mean, I'm not an expert on this, but the whole point is, that, that which comes along with the kidney issue potentially is overworking the kidneys. And then in the point is to this point, to the extent to which now no urine was even coming out. I don't know. I mean, I, I think that sounds very clearly as a risk right there to even continue. Would you agree with that? I mean, that seems yeah. like you're, you're pressing the system when nothing's there. That's a, that sounds right. crazy. Yeah, exactly. I was like, I don't want to make her kidneys angrier. And at this point, yeah. I do ask, um, you know, if we're staring down dialysis, like, does it make more sense to um, uh, be less forceful with the kidneys, let them take the break, and to just do that dialysis? And I'm told about, you know, all the risks of dialysis, with, which are true. Um, but if we continue to uh, provoke the kidneys when they're, they're, in failure, does that, does that potentially put more risk on them to come back damaged or to not come back at all? And so, um, and I, I eventually go on to speak with, um, some medical advocacy groups, um, with their professionals, you know, pharmacists, doctors, nurses, and I learned that the way that Lasix group, Lasix works is through, um, an electrolyte exchange that happens in the tubules that, um, depletes the mucus, the protective mucus of those tubules and causes a lot of inflammation. And so, um, you know, repeated inflammation of provoking this um, electrolyte exchange uh, would make sense to me that it could, it could cause harm. Um, And so I I was, I was definitely, I was definitely, that was on my radar very much. Um, But um, I I was also concerned that in order to do the LASIK strip, they wanted to um, do a bladder catheter. Now, that didn't make sense to me because if she's not having any urine output, then why would we use a catheter, which is obviously traumatizing for a four-year-old. Right. And this isn't something I can get her consent on, you know. Um, And so... 
um, I said, well, why don't we do bladder scans? And then if her bladder is full, you know, a catheter might make sense. And they said that I would not be welcome in the ICU, that that is the standard of care. I would not be welcome. And that if I did need, if she did need dialysis, because now she's in kidney failure, um, that uh, she would have to be medevaced somewhere. And it was very, uh, you know, it, it was very coercive uh, yeah. that, that we had no other choice, basically. So um, I think that's important right there. So this it, uh, clearly this so far, this experience has been you're being told what the treatment will be, but at least you're being involved to some degree. That was that the first moment where it was very clear we're doing this, whether or not you agree. Is that how you felt? Is that what the real situation was? Yes. I mean, that definitely started the the trajectory of, of combativeness. Right. Um, they were already um, you know, uh, they were definitely hostile towards my request. Um, but why do you think that is denying care? Um, it's, it's hard to say. It's really hard to say. I do think that, you know, there is a lot of, um, a lot of ego in medical environments. Uh, and, you know, they, they don't like to stray from the norm. Now, it is interesting, too, that when I had to bring up to them, like, hey, I want to be spoken to, uh, like, I am not ignorant. I actually used to work here. And somebody said, well, then you're just part of the family, right? Like, they didn't want me to um, go outside of, like, what the system, like, if you're understanding sociology, <laughs> sort of, like, what the system works at, right? Like, mm-hmm. we, this is what we do. This is the standard of care. And you'll go on to see when it comes to, um, we're, we'll get there actually very shortly um transfusion it was very interesting to me that i was one of the only people they've ever encountered that wants a direct donor um especially when they make you yeah but especially they make you read this paperwork uh that says that you are you know assuming all risk for things like hiv like any contamination and um you know that the hospital is not liable and so for it to be like so out of the norm for me to request direct donor blood was concerning to me like yeah. like the type of compliance that they're they're used to and so when they encountered something that they weren't used to all defenses go up right so i kept right. having to say like i want everyone to bring the um the tone of this down i want everyone's nervous system to be regulated um and there's a lot of adrenaline happening with the way that you're speaking um and so I think they didn't like that either. Um, but it was it was very uh, action oriented. You know, let's make decisions quickly um, versus understanding like, well, her kidneys are already in failure. So what are yeah. decisions? What what decisions can we make? You know. Well, there you know, there's plenty of opinions out there. Plenty of people that were probably listening right now that would argue that they know better. And, you know, and, and maybe that's even the truth at the end of the day. But the point for me is that it does not ultimately we, – we, we're, there's a line that's always being crossed in this conversation. The, per, the parents have rights in this regard, right? Now, there's obviously a discussion to be had when, when it comes to somebody claiming that there's negligence, right? But at the end of the day, this is – we're in a situation where it becomes a political – especially when we get into this kind of blood transfusion discussion. You are simply arguing that there's another path. And it's not even, as far as I, what you're, you're telling us, it's just walls go up. 
Not like, right. well, let's discuss that. Let's find out like the age old discussion. Hey, I'll get a second opinion. Oh, instead right. these days we'll call the child services. If that's how it's, it's just, it's right. you're right. There's a level of hubris there. What, even if they're correct, that as opposed to engaging with this informed consent dynamic that we're supposed to pretend we all live under, it's very clearly not the case. I'm not right. going to say that every time a doctor feels adamant about something that it's wrong, but it's your child and your right to make these decisions at the very least be involved with the thought process. And I think that's one of the biggest issues you have here is that there you're, and, and we'll get into some more points where you're, you're not even being cons consulted about these choices anymore. And I think that becomes the case once they start to kind of earmark you as somebody who's going to push back. And I, I just, it's this snowballing effect that is getting out of control. And I, I think it's actually, in my opinion, to the detriment of the child and, and the treatment in, in general. So yeah, I, I just had to state that. I think this is very frustrating. And I think this is a lot of people who are in the same position who can, who, you know, who, who relate to where you are right now with all this. And I think this is probably going to be helpful for them in general. Right. I hope so. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, so if there's another part you wanted to finish on that, the, the Lasix discussion, otherwise you can jump sure. into the transfusion part of it. And yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah, so, um, you know, when we first arrived here and they started discussing, like, the potential trajectory of all this and they bring up dialysis, you know, my husband and I say, if she's going to need a transfusion, we we want to donate. And particularly mm -hmm. my husband, I know there's some questions about whether mothers or not should donate. Um, and, you know, that's for a lot of a variety of factors. But, you know, if I was even going the the blood donor, the anonymous blood donor route from somewhere like Red Cross, it's like, you know, yeah, there's potential for contamination. That's a, a risk, I right. assume. But also, I don't know that person. I don't know their lifestyle. Like, do, I, I haven't donated blood in a long time, but like, do they smoke? Do Are they a drinker? Like, um, you know, what is their immune system like? And that's right. going to be shared with my daughter. Um, the, those body fluids are going to be shared with my daughter. And so in supporting her health, it makes sense that I would want to choose people who live a lifestyle that I feel comfortable with. Um, and so, you know, dad being first made sense to me. And, um, you know, right off the bat, they were saying things like, oh, well, it's like, you know, five to seven days getting in with the lab. And then, you know, the processing time is long and uh, mm. we'll make sure they call you today. And they said that for the first few days um, until they started talking about her need for a transfusion. We keep getting pushed off. We keep bringing it up, you know, morning and night. Um, and so as she's now, you know, she's moved on to the LASIK strip with the nebumic strip and then they add in DIRL and there's still no response and she has this catheter. Um, and, you know, it, eventually they go on to tell me that they need to take out the catheter for infection risk, which is, of course, something I was concerned about as well. Exactly. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, they tell us that she is hemolyzing. And that, uh, you know, she will likely need a transfusion. Now, obviously, at this point, we're upset because we were like, we've been asking for days now. What is going on? And so my husband calls the, the direct donation lab and speaks with the supervisor and is able to get an appointment within 30 minutes. And they said that the turnaround time is typically three days or less. So obviously, we're both upset. Now, they're giving us parameters for... Um, for a transfusion that we are hoping that she will make it to um, in order to get the blood that we feel is safest for her. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, they are moving towards, um, you know, dialysis. They're um, getting, 
you know, ready to do a port in her neck when I, you know, express concerns that I don't want a student practicing on my daughter. I don't want a resident um, performing the surgery. And so I'm told by the attending that um, it does have to be a fellow, but that she will be right next to them. So I have a newborn and a toddler and I take uh, them downstairs um, and I come back to switch out with my husband and the attending is in the hallway at the nurse's station and the um, fellow is performing a procedure on my child and I um, am told by my husband that they made the line too long. They had to unsuture it, shorten it, and re-suture it. And, um, you know, this is being done without the attending there. Uh, So I am, I am upset. It's been, it's, you know, not done properly and the attending isn't in the room when I come up. Um, and so, uh, we move forward with dialysis and, uh, the port site is bleeding. She's having a lot of bleeding and the dialysis nurse says that, um, you know, she, uh, needs it tightened and to be resutured. And so again, having to perform another procedure on her, uh, at which point when they're doing it, uh, you know, I do have a high sedation tolerance and I hear her wake up screaming at, at least twice. I'm pretty sure it was twice um, while they're while they're doing that to her. Uh, and she's continuing to lose blood when we're trying to uh, get to a place where she can get her transfusion of her dad's blood. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, with that first dialysis treatment, um, she's not able to get there without dad's blood or with dad's blood, get to the point where she could get dad's blood. And so they're threatening a court order. And my husband calls the lab. It's been a little over 24 hours. And he says, um, you know, it's life or death. How soon can you get my blood? And they said, we can get it to you by 6 PM. So while that's a relief, um, why wasn't the medical team calling? Why was my husband calling? Exactly. Why was he calling the supervisor and saying it's an emergency? So I'm clearly upset. Um, they are, we are able to wait until six. Um, she's in a stable enough place to do that. But then when they start dialysis that night, um, she winds up, uh, the, the dialysis machine winds up having um, some sort of issue and they lose some of the blood. Um, so some issue with the filter. So she didn't get all of the blood that my husband actually donated, which was also concerning. So we're starting to see a lot of medical errors and getting to a place of malpractice, um, uh, as we, as we go on. So, um, I have a couple quick questions if I can interject. I just, I I don't want to, I want you to keep going with this, but you know, so first of all, you said a court order. In, in, in what, what are they, what's the court order for in that moment? So we haven't gotten uh, the blood so transfusion part. Go ahead. It is actually regarding the blood transfusion. Okay. The court order would be for a uh, blood bank. Uh, right. Blood. So, so they're trying to force you via legal a- action to, to take blood from Red Cross essentially, or yes. one of their blood banks. Okay. Yes. I'll get to that. So the, the, and you mentioned the fellows part. I don't want people to skip past that. I think this is a really, really like, so bottom line is it's your right. And I, this is even something that is, as far as I can tell around, you know, nationwide, that it's your option if you want to, let's say, I don't want that doctor, I don't want this nurse. Now, obviously, there's ways that there's around that, you know, if they don't have enough staff and so on. But at any point were you ever saying, I don't want these people, it's probably going to be the same with any other person at the hospital. But did you even try to go that route at ever, like to before even the, the teaching hospital? Were you asking for other people, other treatments, other opinions? Uh, no, not at that point, because we were told only children's hospitals can um, treat this condition. 
And so there aren't a lot of options by us that are teaching hospitals. So I would just wind up the same at UCSF Benioff, um, the same position potentially. So I do eventually, uh, it is brought up uh, when Child Protective Services calls um, or shows up and and there's, you know, a hearing eventually regarding something else. Um, I do bring up that I want a different doctor and it's brought up in the hearing that I tried to fire the doctor as though that isn't right. And see, this is exactly the point. And you can look this, uh, this there. Anybody can look this up. It's it's a documented right. At the end of the day, the reason I wanted to make that point first clear is that, you know, so you, now you're in a position where you have a a teaching school where you have or a hospital and you request that you want somebody other than a student and that doesn't happen. I think that's an important legal point right there. There may be some kind of effort to act like you didn't, you requested and they said no and you didn't push. I'm sure that's how they play the game, but ultimately you did ask for somebody else and they didn't follow through with that. I just want that to be on the record because I think that's your right. And, and that's something that was not regarded or not acknowledged. Now, I think the the aspect of, and let's get into that, the Child Protective Services call and all this so far. One thing that really blows my mind, even if it's perceived that you, let's say, that in their mind, they think that you're endangering something, which clearly you're not. You, essentially what's happening is you're being penalized for caring too much for your child, for caring. Like even you want to know what's going on. You want to be involved and you want to make these decisions. It Shouldn't that be the, what they want of everybody? I mean, the, the very premise for the idea of Child Protective Services are taking children away from children negligent parents that don't care about the process, don't care about the treatments or anything else. So it just seems like they're now penalizing parents for actually caring what happens. And I just think that's obscene. So before we get to child protective services, so now you, they, the court order to stop you from the blood transfusion from your father or from, from your husband. And I think what's important there is that historically, and back me up on this, if, if this, if tell me know if this is correct, it's always been the, the it's almost sought after, circumstance where you have you, you need blood and you find out if there is a blood match in the family is what isn't that always a classic route that's and what it, i assumed yeah well i mean i think it is and i think that that changed post covid 19 and so you, you feel free to give me your thoughts on whether that plays a factor or not but so now we're at a point where there is and actually let me just show you these really quickly i think this is important because i don't want to interject when you start telling this we covered this uh, on the last american vagabond there's been multiple examples during this situation where infants were taken from their parents because they refused to take blood from red cross and then ultimately in two different cases those babies later died within months after that and and still ultimately there was no no consequence for that same thing. Uh, here's an example from New Zealand where they lost the custody because of the same point. And in each circumstance, they had a donor that was willing within the family that they refused to allow to happen. Now, I also want to point out that Red Cross and still maintains it to this day as of uh, September 2022 makes sure, makes it clear that they don't label their blood in the context of COVID-19 as vaccinated, unvaccinated. And I want to make sure people understand that there's multiple peer reviewed studies that find very clearly that in this case, SARS-CoV-2 spike mRNA vaccine sequences circulate the blood with up to 30, up to 28 days. This one finds up to 30 days. So my point is simply is there's obviously a valid reason for these things to be considered. Like it's ultimately your choice and whether or not you want to use from the blood bank, even in, in regard to the possible contamination, which we've had history of. And then it comes all the way back to the reality that you have a family member that's willing to do it. I just want that on the record for people that understand. So please continue. So now they're pushing back and you're, you're calling the, uh, the blood, uh, the the 
clinic to try to get the blood and go ahead. Yeah. Continue. Yeah. So, well, yeah. So we got to the point where, you know, um, uh, where they wound up losing some of the blood in the dialysis situation, um, right. which sort of continues on. Uh, there's another, um, another, you know, uh, dialysis issue um that happens where they wind up uh, not being able to give my daughter's blood back because there's not enough um water in the dialysis machine um uh throughout all of this my daughter is continuing to have bleeding at the site of the port so um you know she just lays in her bed like this she doesn't want to move she keeps you know she has um the whole side of her face is all swollen and red because it's just pressed against her pillow she's very scared she asks me is my neck bleeding and often it is um and they want to do dressing changes all the time where they get it to coagulate more um you know uh i'm asking for ativan for her because she screams when they put alcohol on it and when you scream it tightens and more blood is coming out that's why this is like a literal mother's nightmare right um and so, uh, you know, this is continuing to happen uh, multiple times a day, honestly. Um, and at some point, she's getting ready for dialysis treatment. And unfortunately, um, you know, I've been asking, you know, what goes in the dialysis machine, all these questions. And they, you know, pull something out uh, that is labeled albumin. And um, they knew how hard we fought for the direct donor blood and that we have um, some friends who are also donating uh, but I was informed that albumin is a blood product that I do not have to consent to because it goes in the dialysis machine. So she has received that uh, three times. Uh, the alternative would have been wow. saline. So, you know, I went up crying on the bathroom floor all night. Um, but, you know, I have to proceed with her care. So um, they but also you- informed me. Sorry, I was going to say, so you, you feel violated by that, obviously. You yeah. think that that's something that, yeah. Yeah, I don't have, to, they don't need my consent. Like, that's absurd. It's a blood product. So, right. um, yeah, that I don't think that that is uh, ethical at all. Um, yeah. And then they tell me when I ask, well, what is it preserved with? Like, if I don't have to sign paperwork around consent, I imagine there's preservatives in it. Um, and they tell me it doesn't have any preser- preservatives. It just maintains its shelf life because it contains aluminum. Um, and wow. so aluminum is obviously a heavy metal. And if my daughter's um, kidneys are not properly functioning, then uh, her filter, right? Her filters are not working. Um, then what risk does that potentially pose? Yeah. I mean, the, I, I'm almost, I'm actually kind of shocked that that's the case with where we are and the understanding of aluminum and w- the many different potential risks that can cause, especially for a child that age. I mean, th- they've been removed from in different injections they give. And yet this is something that's, I mean, I, I'm actually kind of shocked more than even the fact that it's being given that this is something that unless you had asked about it, you would not even know was being given to your child. Right. I didn't, I had no idea. And it was actually just set on the bed while they were getting the machine ready, the inside of the machine. Which, which really, I think that one point alone j- makes sense of why this is so important, right? Had you not asked, you would have not known in the first place. And then at the same point, if that ends up causing some kind of causing a complication, you wouldn't even know to ask if that was what caused it, you know? And so right. this is why it's so important for parents to be involved in the choices and understand the different treatments and, and the possible consequences. Yes, that's, right. that blows me away. Right, right. So, um, so we kind of continue on this path with the port issue um, as we keep going. Uh, you know, I believe she received four dialysis treatments and just the bleeding is not stopping. Um, and uh, the constant dressing changes get to a place where I am restraining my daughter 
for two hours while they are trying to get the bleeding to stop and the blood to coagulate and um, they're using alcohol and um, it's it's literally torture. They're giving her multiple doses of Ativan. They finally gave them to giving her Ativan at my request. Um, and um, she continues to bleed all night all over her bed. And the next morning she is she wakes up screaming, take it out, take it out. Um, and it's hours of her doing that. And it's on a weekend. So we knew that um, an alternative for dialysis is a port in, in the chest. Um, and so when you're uh, going to have long-term dialysis, they put, typically put it here, similar to chemotherapy. Um, and so we thought, well, at least she could move around, right? I, I, she's always been, I describe her as my camel, where I have to get her up to pee um, and, you know, prompt her, basically. Uh so like if it's at nighttime and she's getting ready for bed, I have to say, okay, let's go, let's go pee pee. Like she doesn't, she doesn't want the bed. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, and she's not going to do that when she's in this state, you know? Um, and so, uh, they want to wait for the OR team to not be called in on the weekend. Um, ideally because, um, you know, then you don't get the B team, you get the A team or whatever. And so it's Sunday morning and we're having this screaming and I'm saying, like we need to get this out of her neck. Uh, this is this is not. She's not going to heal like this, right? The the body has this thing that it thinks is an open wound. Um, mm. It's not going to focus on her kidneys right now. And so, um, uh, you know, we say we t we're willing to take liability if you have to do emergency dialysis in the middle of the night to put it right back in her neck. But until tomorrow, uh, we want it taken out, and then she can get a chest port. Um, and so uh, they remove it and. Um, Within an hour, she wakes up, and I ask if she has to pee, and she pees. Now, it's not a lot, but um, it is enough for us to see some signs that her kidneys are coming back online. And I don't think it's a coincidence that, hey, this, like, major artery is closed now. <laughs> Maybe we can focus on some other things. So it, it seems to me so, thus far in your story that, that everything that seems to be happening at the very least seems likely to have been caused by the treatment itself. I mean, am I wrong on that? The dialysis doesn't seem, I mean, it's possible these things were the consequence of whatever syndrome, I guess they're assuming is happening, but right. other than the original illness, it seems that this is a consequence of continued treatment and what they're doing and then dealing with those issues with more treatment. I mean, am I wrong in that perspective here? Yes. And, and also just write all of these errors that are, um, you know, continuing to kind of have this cascade so uh you know like with the fact that it wasn't installed correctly the first time um mm -hmm. is very alarming because then it kind of continues on into this further trauma of my child where i am restraining her to get it to work properly right to to get it to a place where she can receive dialysis comfortably um and so you know looking at this through the lens of of malpractice as well is that you know we're just continuing to traumatize the child um and so as we you know continue down the path that, that we've already begun uh you know, more, more concerning things evolve, um, to the point of, you know, involving child protective services because I'm speaking out about them. Yeah. Well, no, let's please get into it. So, so now we're okay. at the, you're at the, the point where you are battling with them in regard to the blood transfusion. Right. And so go ahead forward from there with the court order and the the, right. you know, go ahead. Well, the court order threat has stopped now that she received her dad's blood and we did get a donor. Um, we worked with uh, two registries, blood, blessed by his blood and pure blood um, registries. Um, and uh, we also had a couple of friends that were willing to um, donate as well. 
So you were able, you were able to get, to get your, the, your husband's blood used. They did. They did. They did. They did wind up using it. That was some of the blood that they lost. So when they lost some blood for that, that was, it was his. And so we knew, okay, great. So we're probably going to need more blood. Right. Oh, I see. Um, I misunderstood. So that was the moment when they were giving his blood. Mm -hmm. Okay. So they were giving his blood. what, What I'm interested in. So what, what ultimately, why did they end up giving in? Do you have any insight into that? What, what? I think be, I think just because we were able to get it by 6 p.m., it wound up being like, right, mm. they're like, and and initially they're like, well, saying things to me like, well, what if she needs more blood? What are you going to do then? Um, and I was like, well, we'll get people. We have family and friends right. that are willing to donate. And I know these people and I assume much less risk that way. Um, and logical. so, right. And, and when I expressed to them, like, why why is my husband the one arranging all of this? Like, why are we the ones and not her medical team supporting this? They expressed to me that, you know, it it just wasn't familiar to them. We, you know, this is not our standard of care. Um, And so it, that was, again, I think I I talked a little bit at the beginning, like alarming to me that so many parents just comply. They just really outsource um, all medical decision-making to whatever the the staff thinks. It's I, I just, I can't believe that anybody's in that position. I mean, I, you know, I understand it. I think that people are afraid of finding themselves in this position, you know, and I think right. that's absolutely despicable that that seems to be the largest reason people just kind of acquiesce to the, the structure at the hospital. I mean, yes, these people have metal de- medical degrees, some of them, right. But at the same mm-hmm. time, I mean, I just, it, what it really comes down to is the absolute disregard for informed consent. How can you be informed and give consent without even being involved in the process? Like that, it, right. that's actually, I mean, technically a violation of their oath, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I believe so. Um, so that's why, it, you know, we'll continue on and you'll see that mm-hmm. that, that, that escalates dramatically. Um, so, um, you know, how this person is now that she is urinating, it gets even more concerning because the first thing they want to do when she just starts to have a little bit of urine output is to start the same protocol as when she got here. So the Lasix and the diurel and, um, you know, her potassium's going up and the solution is Lasix. Like it's, it's just, it's very concerning to me that we would push a drug right away that has these um, side effects of potential kidney injury and, and kidney failure. So especially um, as you're already dealing with that problem, like I, right. that doesn't make any sense. Right. They're just, they're just starting to feel safe, right? They're just starting to wake up and let's throw something aggressive and forceful. It's going to, you know, push all the fluids through. And, um, you know, basically it also through that electrolyte exchange that, that the, that the medication works by the, it alters the electrolyte exchange. It's basically telling the kidneys you're doing it wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when they're just coming back online, are they just going to shut right back down? That, that was my concern. And well, so let's not forget the point you made this important earlier that not only does it have that effect, but as you mentioned, and in, in maybe I don't remember the exact framing, but it, it ends up causing inflammation and reduces uh, the, I forget the thing you said it removes, but ultimately that that the mucus, yes, the protective mucus, mucus. Yeah. Right. Which, which then definitely lowers your ability to then defend yourself. You know, the inflammation itself in a situation like that is, is dangerous in my opinion, but you know, how, what degree is debatable, but I'm just pointing out that you're now in a position where you're adding something that's only going to, I mean, again, it seems like you're in a cycle of treatment and cause and like the the cause is because of the treatment. Then there's another treatment to fix that. I mean, that's my opinion, but that's very frustrating. 
Right. So I see the writing on the wall here right. and I'm not comfortable with it. And so, um, you know, I kind of trying to buy time basically like let's get our kidneys to just feel like hey it's okay wake back up right um and so uh you know in that place of buying time they actually come to me and they say um you know we really need to push fluids um you know so uh you know try to do that all day like really encouraging fluids lots of fluids and so i do that even though she's telling me she's not thirsty which kind of indicates something to me right like if she if her kidneys were ready they would be making her thirsty. Um, and so she pushes back on me a lot. And I do notice that her blood pressure starts to go up, but I continue for that whole day. The next morning I say like, I, I don't feel right about doing this. And so I tell the doctors, you know, she's telling me she's not thirsty and you guys really wanted me to push a lot of fluids on her. And I just don't know that's the right decision given that I saw her blood pressure start to go up and it is starting to go back down, but she had also been sleeping. And so um, they tell me, Oh, that was a charting error. You should not be pushing fluids on her. Um, just let her drink when she's thirsty. So now she's starting to get puffy. Um, so she's retaining all of those fluids that they had me push. Um, and she gets to a place where she's got, you know, upwards of six pounds or more of fluid on her that she's accumulating. Now wow. her numbers uh, for her kidney function, they're, not good, but they're not in a place where they seem to be recommending emergency dialysis. Like we didn't wind up getting the port put in her because um, as soon as we closed up the one in her neck, uh, we removed it. Um, she gained some kidney function back. So we're just trying to see if oh. these kidneys will, you know, continue to improve um, by giving them support and not being forceful. Right. And so right. once she starts having all that fluid, I am um, working with remnant nursing to really understand these medications and their potential risks, and then also explore other medications. So talking with pharmacists, doctors, nurses, and one of the doctors I speak with says, you know, that is a significant amount of weight on her little body. Like, I think she was 36 pounds before all wow. this. And so, um, you know, if we're going to look at uh, using a diuretic, there is one that, you know, you have not mentioned that is, you know, um, slower acting and could be considered gentler on the kidneys. Now it does an electrolyte exchange, but it works a little differently. And um, it takes, it takes a lot more time to get output. So instead of one hour, like that one hour, um, forceful, uh, you know, expression of, of urine, um, it's usually about four to six hours. So um, around the same time with her potassium levels, uh, you know, going up, they want me to do Lasix as the as the treatment, but they present another alternative um, called Kaxalate, which I explore with the medical advocates who bring up that, um, you know, if you're going to go that route, which is an option, it is not Lasix, it could be considered gentler, maybe having less risk to the kidneys for sure. Um, then you'll need to make sure that her calcium levels are safe because it will also lower calcium. And I had mentioned a few days prior to the team that she is begging me for milk um, and she doesn't drink milk. So is there something that we should be looking at? Um, you know, I spoke with a resident that evening when they wanted to give the medication saying, you know, hey, should we look at her calcium levels? Because no one ever followed up on 
on whether the milk indicated the desire for milk indicated anything. And mm-hmm. I'm concerned because too low of calcium, I've been told by, you know, these medical professionals um, can affect her heart. And, you know, I get like pushback initially, which I thought was odd, like, mm-hmm. um, but eventually, I think they go and they maybe look at her labs and discuss it with it, an attending, I'm not sure. Um, and they do eventually come back and say, Oh, her calcium levels are low, that can affect the heart. Um, let's supplement her with some calcium. So good thing you spoke up, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So um, we are starting to see more urine output around this time, but it's not enough to take off right, all the weight that she's continuing to accumulate. And so um, we do decide to try the hydrochlorothiazide, which was the gentler diuretic. Um, And around the same time, the medical advocates had spoken with me about um, a uh, just checking in for metabolic acidosis. And um, it is recommended that she start taking sodium bicarbonate. Um, and with the combination of the sodium bicarbonate, lowering her potassium levels with the kaoxalate and starting the hydrochlorothiazide, we do get a lot more urine output. Um, uh, and that continues to um, accelerate uh, to a point where it starts to get concerning though. Um, so, you know, in this process, they have expressed to me, you know, that her blood pressure had been going up as I saw, like, do we want to start blood pressure medication? The hydrochlorothiazide helped to lower it. It actually does lower blood pressure, but she starts also losing um, within 36 hours, she's losing almost everything she gained. She was losing about a liter uh, in urine every three to four hours. Um, and at the same time, they come to me and they say, we want to challenge her kidneys today. So we're going to um, lower her sodium bicarb um, and we're going to push a liter and a half of fluids orally for her. So because she's having so much output, I'm like, okay, well, maybe it's an input output thing. Um, but I did consult with a medical advocate who said that that's like the equivalent of an adult drinking five liters of water, um, which is a lot of pressure on her little body. And um, so I, I did push water throughout the day, but by the evening she begins to throw up water and um, she's also begging for water. So she's throwing it up and she's begging and she's losing a liter every three to four hours. And I start to get concerned um, that maybe she's dehydrated. Um, And so, you know, the, one of the medical advocates had said to maybe explore an IV. Um, And I also bring up the fact that we had lowered her sodium bicarbonate levels. So I was worried about the acidosis. Um, And I'm told to just uh, feed her ice chips until rounds in the morning. And so sadly, I I do. I feed her ice chips all night until she finally falls asleep around 4 a.m. And then I wake up because she's wet the bed. Now I've explained to you that I call her my my camel. Um, She doesn't she doesn't pee without kind of being prompted. Mm -hmm. And so um, I say something to her and her response is a little odd. It's something about her brother or her dad. Um, And so I walk around to the side of the bed that her head is facing, which is to the left. And I'm sort of up into the left and that's where she's looking, but her eyes are darting back and forth. So she is having a seizure. Mm. Um, And so I go get the nurses and, um, you know, they get a response team. And um, at this time, they uh, administer Ativan and they take her for a CT scan. 
And with the CT scan, they tell me, well, there's a little spot in the back of the brain that's a little bit blurry, but um, they're going to assess. So they, you know, have her push and pull and pick up her legs and she's doing all those things, but she hasn't slept all night and she was given Ativan. And so she is in the bright light. She doesn't want to open her eyes. Um, and so the neurologist didn't seem that concerned. And, um, you know, uh, I felt like maybe we had some time to kind of assess, but they're, you know, kind of talking about like, well, can, you know, would she be able to see, we need to be able to assess that. And the ICU doctor comes in and this particular person I'd interacted with before over the transfusion. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, sort of hostility and, and I feel like excessive urgency, um, in, in her tone, in the way she's speaking to us about, um, our daughter's safety, having her safety in mind. Mm -hmm. And she tells us that in order to rule out a stroke, they need to intubate her to give her anesthesia for an MRI. Now I spoke with a medical advocate who said, I'm, I might not do that. I might give her some time and then, and then assess as the Ativan starts to wear off. Um, and then you can always have an MRI, but, uh, given the environment, we didn't feel totally comfortable. And obviously we, if she did need to be assessed for a stroke, then that's something we would be willing to do. And so we agreed to intubate her for an MRI to, to get the anesthesia for the MRI. Now, when they bring her out from the MRI, they tell us that um, she may have a condition called press, which I actually have a friend who had press after she gave birth. Um, and it's basically a condition that's categorized by a rapid expansion of the blood vessels in the back of the brain. So expansion and contraction. And most of the time it resolves on its own. That's what I'm told by the neurology team. Um, and later we go on to discover that they don't even really follow up on it with MRIs because, you know, the images can look the same for months or years, even when you have no symptoms. So, um, so anyway, around this time, they aren't extubating her. Um, and we have not consented to her being on a ventilator for those um, for those unaware that just means removing the the ventilator and, and the intubation right that's that's all that right. means right yeah and i what since i interjected really quickly i think it's important i think because of what happened during the COVID 19 conversation people become much became much more aware of the risks that are associated with intubation it's not some i mean it's common but there are definitely risks and i think that's important people to know so please continue yeah so you know um Obviously, I have some concerns because, uh, you know, when she was throwing up water, I first thought of like, you know, aspirating on on what she's throwing up. Like, could she wind up with, you know, some sort of pneumonia from this? Um, because they had also been checking her lungs and her breathing throughout this whole process, even with all the water that she had retained. Um, and they always said her breathing sounded good. Um, and so, uh, you know, putting her on a ventilator was a little concerning to me because mm -hmm. of the risk that I was aware of. And they eventually kind of say, like, um, you know, maybe just for a few hours this afternoon. And the way it works is that, you know, the ventilator provides compression to the lungs to move the fluid out. And that's not how I understood ventilators to work, which I confirmed um, through medical advocates, uh, you know, the pediatric respiratory therapists that um, it is a stopgap typically. It is not a treatment. Um, and so, you know, I'm becoming concerned as we get into the evening time that I'm not seeing anything change. And so I express that to the doctor. I say, you know, I'm not seeing the needle move on uh, what you're looking for. And so I'd like to look at what next steps are like, where is this going? 
Right. And, you know, I'm kind of brushed off. I'm told, you know, I'm not surprised that she is where she is right now. Um, you know, uh, we think she's good for the night. Um, you know, she, we're giving her the time for the ventilator to work. So it's a treatment. Right. Um, and, you know, an evolving conversation would be diuretics. Um, now I'm wanting to have that conversation now, but it's very clear that she's not right. Um, and so, uh, you know, that idea that it's an evolving conversation, I say, okay, well, I want to be notified of any medications that uh, my daughter receives, uh, you know, going forward as, as in the past. Um, but right. particularly I want to be woken up if I'm asleep and at any time. And so, um, you know, that night I get woken up for a diaper change, uh, because she's, you know, she's on the, on the ventilator. Um, and she's, she's really struggling to be, to be sedated. I have that high tolerance and clearly so does she, because she's, you know, grabbing at the tube, she's crying. Um, they're giving her boluses of fentanyl and morphine and Ativan and it's just overwhelming, um, propofol, all of it. And so. And can I note uh, really quickly, as you mentioned earlier, after all the things you've been given, they don't know the different dynamic, the side effects of these things being given simultaneously. They just don't. Right. And that's, right. that's an obvious risk. Go ahead. And that was something that I explained like way back when, when they were talking about the, the progression of the disease, when I was like resistant to doing Lasix again, I said, well, if, if she, or if her, her kidneys shut down again, or the, they decline in any way, you're going to say, oh, that's the roller coaster of the disease. And I'm going to say that's a side effect of the medication. And neither of us is going to be able to prove each other wrong. Right. So you don't know, you don't know that these medications aren't causing harm. If something declines, you're right. going to say it's not, but I'm going to say it is potentially. So um, anyway, so that's, you know, the similar, similar argument here. Um, and so they're, you know, inundating her with medication to attempt to sedate her, but she's not fully sedated. And um, uh, so they wake me up to give her fentanyl or Ativan after the first diaper change, uh, fentanyl after the second diaper change. They come to me to let me know that they were going to give her Tylenol, which I declined because they just gave her fentanyl because uh, they tell me it's just for pain. Um, and then uh I wake up around four and I say, um, during the diaper change, like, wow, her, her heart rate is really high. And the nurse says, uh, yes, um, I just had to also administer more blood pressure medication. And I said, well, what changed? And he said, well, we gave her the Lasix about an hour ago. <sighs> so obviously I am very upset because a medication was given without my consent to my right. child. Um, also, I was told it would be an evolving conversation. So why wouldn't you come and speak to a parent and say, hey, you know, we're getting to a place where some changes are going to need to be made for X, Y, and Z. These are some options we have. Um, and of course, obtaining consent. But also, if they had looked at her chart, they would have seen that we worked with the nephrology team for at least what, 10 days, maybe two weeks to, um, try an alternative, which is the hydrochlorothiazide. Um, so I was very upset and I let them know that I was going to be filing grievances, um, which is kind of where things turn in terms right. of, I believe, trying to involve child protective services. Right. Um, so, you know, that happens about 36 hours later, but within the next day or so, like the, the tone very much changes as well. Well, you're, um, now you're perceived as a threat. I mean, that just from a business standpoint, as an administrator, you're somebody who's going to file a grievance and have a right and standing to do so. Right. That's, right. Uh, and especially when you stack everything up with it. Right. Yep, so, right. um, so the next day the neurology team comes to speak with me and they say that, you know, um, they, uh, 
are recommending a medication for, um, uh, it's an anti-seizure medication, and that's because she'll be coming off of propofol. She'll have to move on to a drip of fentanyl um, just because they only do propofol as a drip for a certain period of time. And um, that the the medication Keppra carries a risk of impacting kidney function. And so, you know, that's worth my consideration. Right. And so, you know, I want time to speak with the medical advocates about this and, and really understand the medication and the alternatives. And at the same time, they're discussing a pick line, um, but they have just replaced three IVs. So, um, you know, when we've just put in all these access points for medications and fluids and whatnot, I'm, I don't feel that a pick line is necessary, especially because it is more invasive. And we already can, you can consen- go ahead. Can you explain that for people who don't know what sure. that is? Sure. So a pick line, at least the one on our daughter, um, it goes actually in the leg. You can put one in the neck, which obviously we were not going to start that whole mess again. But you, it goes in through the leg and um, it's a much larger uh, access point for blood and medications and fluids. Um, and it goes all the way up to the chest. So it is it is invasive. Um, and we had already consented because when we you know, uh, had her on the ventilator, we were told in order for her to remain in the ICU, she also had an art line to monitor her blood pressure because they were worried that the stroke was caused because she was hypertensive and her blood pressure was high after, after her seizure. Um, she had not had an actual stroke, but at the time that's what they were, you know, pressing upon us for the art line. Um, within which a couple is, by days, the way, which is by the way, the only reason she was intubated was the MRI because of the possible stroke, which ended up not being the case. Right. That's important. Go ahead. Right. And so when they place the art line, they're telling us it's the most accurate read for her blood pressure. But by two days later, they're just doing the cuff again and telling me that the art line is not accurate. Now it is an access point for blood, but you know, it's also her, her little hand swelled up with, with it in. And so now we're talking about a, a pick line and I'm saying, you know, when it, we get to a place where that's a necessity, then, you know, I'm open to having that conversation. I want to speak about it with my husband, but right now she just had these three new IVs put in. Um, and so, um, so anyway, uh, you know, I'm told by the doctors, well, that, that could be an emergent conversation. We could have to wake you up in the middle of the night. I said, okay, well, that's fine. That's my job. I'm her mom. And right. they said, well, you could have just minutes to decide. And I said, okay, again, like I'm her parent. That's, that is my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. Um, and so in that same conversation, they also brought up how they did not feel that the hydrochlorothiazide was going to move the fluid out of her lungs quickly enough. So we went from how the ventilator is going to apply enough compression to now we must do Lasix, right? And so they had, you know, they'd already given her one dose of Lasix. Then they, you know, went to the, the diuretic of my choice, um, and then they want to go back to this more aggressive one. Um, and so it's very confusing, right? This this form of, of treatment because they're saying that there is fluid in her lungs. And, and now I'm starting to get concerned not only about aspirated pneumonia, but about, you know, ventilator associated pneumonia um, right. and wanting to test for infection. So um, the conversation ends that, you know, I'm not comfortable with the Lasix right now. Um, and, uh, you know, I will think about... Uh, you know, what our options are. And the next morning, um, you know, I, I am hoping to speak with them because I've gotten to chat with some medical advocates about if we had to um, do another diuretic, that there is a diurel is technically a thiazide. So it does work very quickly um, and it would be more forceful, but she has responded well to the hydrochlorothiazide. So maybe her body would respond okay to the diurel. Um, given that maybe it recognizes it. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, 
And then I'm also waiting to um, discuss with them the um, uh, the potential of using lamictal instead of Keppra, if that would if that would be an option. And I'm telling the nurse that I would like to speak with the doctors. I don't specify the the drugs, right? I don't specify lamictal or anything like that. And um, she's not hearing back from them, and I'm starting to wonder like what's going on. And CPS shows up, and they tell me that. The reason they were called was for two reasons. They had notes, and that's because we refused the PICC line and we refused anti-seizure medications, which is not true, right? At that mm-hmm. point, we had been open to discussing those things. Um, and so uh, they, you know, we tell them that we're, we want to consider Lamictal, how I've been trying to speak with them, how that's not true about the PICC line, Um and they want to go talk to the doctors. So they briefly go talk to the doctors and then they want us all to gather together. Now I have a couple of patient advocates on the phone who, um, you know, have some, some questions to help walk us through with the doctors and, um, CPS is, is in the room, you know, and, um, I point out that, you know, well, we had not declined the pick line, um, that we, uh, wanted to explore Lamictal. And she said, well, the only reason, and, and that I hadn't heard from the doctors this morning, I was waiting for them to come. And she said, well, the only reason I didn't come was because I had to go ask them, ask neurology about the Lamictal. And I said, that's not true because I haven't told anyone about Lamictal. I literally just told CPS right before they spoke to you. So mm-hmm. you're, you're lying about the Lamictal. Um, and so uh, that is not why you didn't come speak to me prior to CPS arriving. So um, in addition, they say, well, it's not just that, it's everything. Um, so, you yeah, know, they tell is. me, right. And so they tell me that the um, diuretic that I'm comfortable with is not working and that um, they're going to, um, you know, expect us to comply with the Lasix. And I say, well, then what about the Diarel? Is that an option? And they say, no. Now that's in the meeting with CPS, um, which later they go on to present that as an option. Um, But I believe that's because they couldn't really justify not using the Diarel at that point in time, right? Why wouldn't they? It's a diuretic. It moves quickly. Um, in addition, I bring up wanting to, or the patient advocates help me to address like, um, testing her for infection. And they say, well, we, you know, we're full of bugs. We don't want to just throw antibiotics at her, which of course I never gave my daughter a Tylenol even. I don't want to do that either, but, um, you know, I'm starting to get concerns, uh, given the fluid buildup in her lungs that they're, that they're explaining to me is the reason why she's still on the ventilator. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, they're basically saying no. Uh, they say, you know, I disagree and, and they get off the phone or, you know, they, they tell the patient advocates that they have to go. Um, and so CPS says, we'll be back in the morning to, you know, understand your decisions. And, um, the next morning. So the, actually that night we, uh, the resident comes to us and says, you know, the doctors actually said that you can, you can do the diarrhea for diuretic. And I was like, I want you to confirm that. I want you to right. confirm that I can do that. The diarrhea is a choice I can use. So she leaves and she comes back and she says, yes, they, you know, com- confirmed that diarrhea, it can be your diuretic of choice. And so, um, then they, the vascular team comes to install the pick line and they say to me, uh, now she has a fever 
And it is hospital policy that we don't um, install a PIC line in a patient that has an infection. And um, with her having an, an active infection, you um, run the risk of sepsis as well as maybe blood clots. I can't remember. I know sepsis for sure. Um, and so you will be assuming the risk and do you consent? Now, of course, we're consenting under coercion uh, because right. we don't feel we have a choice. Right. Um, and so she's administered Keppra, she starts the diarrhea, and she has the decline. And the next morning, uh, CPS calls me and says, um, you know, you're in violation, you didn't comply. Uh, we spoke with the doctors, and you have a hearing at 1.30. And I said, that's not accurate. We, you can look at her medical records to show that we complied. Um, and what they are they claiming that, you didn't comply with? Uh, I, well, that's what I went through. I said, you know, we did the PIC line, we did the Keppra and we administered the diuretic. So, right. so where is the doctor, right? Like I'm asking to speak to the doctor and I'm upset. And, um, later in the hearing, I, in a letter that's written by the doctor, she says that, um, she notified security of, of me being upset. Well, obviously I'm upset because you're issuing a court order to remove my child from my care when right. I complied, when I complied, we were in compliance. And so um, uh, they, CBS says, okay, well, you're saying you did it. You say you have the medical records. We'll, we'll call the doctors and call you back. Um, and in the meantime, text us your email so we can send you the zoom link for the hearing. Now that's not being properly served. Um, and so, uh, at 1130, they, uh, you know, send me a, a text or an email saying, you know, you're still not in compliance and we are going to, um, proceed with the hearing. And so I'm, I'm clearly upset. Um, and, uh, we, you know, are trying to put together some sort of legal support and, um, and, uh, I said, you know, you, I'm going to present that, you know, her medical records show that, that we are in compliance. And so, um, right before the hearing, we get a text that says, you know, the doctors confirm that you're in compliance. Oh my God. But they're still going to have the hearing. And so, um, we're going into this without due process. I've not seen anything that they would present then that would uh, warrant like court order, right? Because we're in compliance. And so um, we did have a lawyer that was willing to be on the Zoom call with us, um, as well as some of the patient advocates um, that we were working with. And um, unfortunately, in California, the law is that a lawyer can only represent us if they have to taken a dependence court course. Um, which of course makes it impossible to find someone. So, uh, you know, someone was assigned to us through the county. Um, and uh, I did appreciate that in the breakout session, whether it was, um, you know, true or not, that she acknowledged that, you know, she was going to ask for a continuance uh, because we weren't properly served, but also there was no due process. She hadn't even received the paperwork until right moments before the hearing. And that she, in the hearing, she said, I don't have that doctor from the a letter from the doctor. I, she, she was she hadn't received what she needed, um, and so we're not receiving those until during the hearing and after. Um, and so we couldn't really counter prior or prepare a counter to the things that they were claiming. Um, and so you know that was that was very concerning. Now they couldn't take our daughter from our from our care because we were in compliance. Right. But, um, you know, they brought up things that were definitely, you know, once the grievances, the grievance, the grievances I was going to file were brought up, obviously, in order to discredit me, they would have to deem me 
unfit, right? Um, and so that's what this was, in my opinion. And um, the things were brought up that were very alarming in, in the hearing, like an example being that when my daughter was on the ventilator, she, um, you know, was not easily sedated. And when they would change her diapers, they would use cold wipes to wipe her. And I would say, um, you know, hey, uh, can we can we do every it's it's just urine, the, the it's a disposable diaper, it's very absorbent, can we just do every other time that we wipe her because I don't want to wake her because then she's upset, she's crying, she's pulling up the tubes, then we have to administer more medications. Um, and in the right. hearing, it was brought up that I was requesting to leave my daughter soiled after uh, having after her diaper changes. Um, so just, you know, the, the attack on my character. Um, and I was able to at least briefly testify that, you know, the reasons that we were not pursuing Lasix, which no one is bringing up from social services, is because when you, um, you know, understand these medications that they do carry a risk of kidney injury and kidney failure, and that we had been moving up the ladder of the least um, risky to the more risky diuretics. Right. Um, and that's that was our request as parents, right, is that we did not want to jump into Lasix because we saw that rapid um, kidney decline for her, and which led to kidney failure. And if we are acting in a way where we are trying to preserve her kidney function and prevent lifelong dialysis, um, you know, that's, that's our, our method of doing so. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that the judge was maybe a little caught off guard because that was not presented. Um, but we didn't even get a chance to speak to the majority of the things because we didn't receive due process. So while they couldn't take her out of our care, they did issue a minute order, which means that we cannot um, refuse uh, life-saving uh, measures for her, um, that the hospital can override us on that. So you know, that's been a concern, although we've been told by many lawyers that we could put a stay on CBS because we didn't receive due process. Um, but it's just finding a lawyer that is able to do that for us, that's able to yeah. assist us with that um, in order to be able to kind of move her out of the care that she's in now and, and into care that we feel is more trustworthy. Um, I'm, uh, go ahead. I'm just, I mean, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's rare these days that, I mean, I'm, I'm always blown away by the dishonesty in in, power, in positions of authority, but I, I have to be honest. I'm I'm almost I'm shocked by its willful dishonesty. Not not some. I mean, whether or not the people involved with this feel that they're doing this for the betterment of the child, they're making up lies about you in regard to the way the who what was said, who spoke when, what discussion was that, and then that's proven with the reality that then it gets proven that one they didn't serve you properly, they didn't give the information you needed, and it comes out in that process that oh well she was in compliance. The basis for the entire thing was that you were not in compliance, and it turns out that you were, and yet it still goes forward. I just don't understand like what it, what the, in the hearing what was the logic of do of having that in the first place from the judge's perspective if the basis was that you weren't in compliance but it was shown that you were why did they go forward with the hearing well i mean i think there were so many things related to like the wipes situation that i wasn't I wasn't aware of going into it either. Like they were attacking just like the, the potential safety of our child and, and our ability to make decisions. Now I'm a marriage and family therapist. My husband is also a law enforcement officer and a military officer. Like we are, we are, you know, 
well-educated and um, loving parents who are involved as advocates in her care. Um, and I think they wanted to make us seem as though we were very negligent and could not be trusted, um, you know, by, by going for our character. Um, and I can't remember the other examples. Um, I'd have to look at the, at the uh, court documents, but um, you know, it was not just those three things, uh, but that the, the reason that they couldn't remove her was because we were in compliance with the actual medical med, um, medical recommendations for, for her treatment so so what would removing her do right right uh, or, or the premise for even going forward with it it proved that they you know the fact that they didn't take your child is the, is proof and that you were not violating whatever they claimed you were in to make that right. happen but so right. what, what i what i don't what i what upsets me is first of all you're in a situation where that was already dynamic the hospital already believes they can make choices without your information it was already right. the way it was going and then just becomes the judge makes that the reality on paper i guess but right. that you're in a position now where even though it turns out they basically at the very least were uninformed about what they thought was going on with you that now they're still in charge and ultimately i mean i just it it does not feel honest to me from the top down and right. you are showing clearly that your choices even in many cases were the right choice and that their lack of action is and what ultimately caused the problem that they later dealt with quite and look this is my opinion but quite frankly it seems like there was concern about your legitimate grievance with what they did or did not do and that then was basically a war was waged on you to make that seem like you were the one at fault for what happened I, that's just my opinion, but I think the facts are on your side. And I think you have a case in regard to proving that I'm kind of blown away that the judge even ruled in that regard, even as your lawyer makes it clear that you weren't even given the time or the information necessary to go forward with that. I mean, right. I'm, I'm just absolutely blown away by that. So, so right. I think now's a good point to make it clear that why you're broadcasting from, from a bathroom why don't you tell me while you're broadcasting from the bathroom yeah, or where you yeah. are right now? You know, that's, um, you know, another part of, of what was brought up was, you know, that um, one thing was that I, you know, said I wanted to, to fire the doctor is that I said, I, I, I want a different doctor at this point. Right. Like, especially now there's conflict of interest Absolutely. because there's a there's court case. Um, but in addition, like it was mentioned that in the in the hearing that when I was upset that, um, you know, I was uh that it was being said that we weren't in compliance that I, you know, demanded to speak to the doctor, uh, which I was very firm in expecting that I should get to speak with the doctor who's saying that we're not in compliance. But in addition, um, it was mentioned that they therefore notified security. And so, you know, I haven't left my daughter's side because I, I do worry that they'll try to find a way to not let me come back, um, right. to not let me come back and be with her. Ah, it just must be absolutely terrifying for you to think that yeah. that's, you know, I mean, the, the, the problem with this is that you're supposed to be in a place where you feel safe. That's right. the concept of the, where you feel that you're there. The, the entire sole interest of that building and the staff is to keep you safe and keep your child safe and to do what's best for the interest of both, but in particular the, the patient. But it does not feel that that's the case. It does not feel that the interest, even if it's secondarily the interest of the patient, it seems to me that the number one interest of the hospital is protecting the hospital. That, I mean, right. this would be the, the equivalence would be the number one interest of a fireman would be protecting the, the people and the engine and the hose as opposed to putting the fire out. Except the job is they're supposed to be putting their lives in the line in order to save other people or a policeman or the same kind of logic. It just it seems counterintuitive. And this is where we get into the idea of these for profit industries that should really be different at the very right. least. Right. So, so, and, you know, go ahead, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. OK, oh, go ahead, I was going to say that's So that's kind of continued on, too, because, um, you know, uh, if you're comfortable with me doing so, I can kind of get you to where we're at now. Please, um, yeah, please, yeah. OK. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, eventually it, the pressure was on, I believe, to like at least attempt extubation because, um, you know, she's continuing to uh, not be able to be sedated. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And so um, while they're hoping to see the fluid levels go down in her lungs, um, which is is happening, um, uh, she's you know, experiencing delirium on fentanyl, where there's lots of jerky movements and pointing, and her eyes are rolling around different directions, which is just so heartbreaking to see as a parent. But then they move to morphine, and she's having massive itching to the point of thrashing in the bed. Um, and that's that's about the safety of the tubes, right? Um, she's not just trying to grab them where they have her in restraints, but um, that there's actual thrashing. Um, and so they talk about extubation, but they say, well, we really want to give more time for those fluids to get out of her lungs. So let's bolus her a bunch of morphine and then counteract it with a bunch of Adderacts and just go back and forth all night. Um, and so I really felt that she was being set up for failure where they, where they could at the morning time be like, well, we tried and she couldn't, you know, she couldn't breathe on her own. So we had to put it right back in. And so they immediately tell me, you know, like in the morning, like we may have to put it right back in. Um, uh, but she was actually able to maintain breathing on her own uh, with BiPAP. And so, um, you know, she has to wear the mask. Um, uh, so currently she has BiPAP on, but they're talking about, you know, a week of this or more. Um, she ripped out her feeding tube. And I said, you know, in order to maintain um, compliance with the mask, uh, I think that we should maybe hold off on the feeding tube and do um, TPN, which is a, um, uh, you know, nourishment nutrients via IV and they you know have all their reasons why they don't feel that that's the right decision but I'm saying you know like the least amount of trauma right now right like let's not shove the breathing tube or the um, feeding tube right back in her nose um, when they're also trying to like suction stuff if she coughs and get her to wear this mask and she has to stay somewhat sedated for the mask which you know I'm wanting those sedatives out of her system as soon as possible because I think if your eyes are rolling around different directions like you're not going to be able to breathe properly Um, and so they they do say that they're going to comply but by the evening yesterday I said, you know, she hasn't had her TPN, it doesn't seem like. Um, so so where is that? And they said, oh, we're not going to give her anything until we get the feeding tube back in tomorrow. So basically, that's potentially posing a case against me about how I was requesting that she not be fed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Which that's is obviously not, not the full context of what was no, happening. It's very no. dishonest, just like right. with the, yeah. Right. And so, you know, that was a, a huge concern of mine was that they're continuing to to build a case, right, um, to sort of justify whatever measures they may want and, and my ability to make the decisions for her. Um, and so, uh, you know, now uh, we're in a place where she is continuing the BiPAP machine. Um, we don't know for how long, but, uh, you know, in another in another, you know, setup like this, if CPS wasn't involved or if we were able to move forward with some legal support around getting, you know, the stay, um, you know, we would want to, we would want to get her different care at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, but that's not really a choice right now when, you know, they can, they can kind of justify any measures they need. Um, it does sound like the x-rays for the pneumonia are improving. And so I don't know that they could justify uh, re her at this point, but that is my fear is that she will, 
right. genuinely be held hostage because at that point in time, it was like, we just have to get her off the ventilator so that we can maybe have some other options. Um, but we just don't know how that's going to go, how, how that's going to progress and, and what options we'll really have. So we were told that there would be another court hearing if we were out of compliance. So, um, you know, that's, that's a concern. And I, all yeah. I can depend on right now is, is that her medical record will show that we were. Hmm. Um, so well, the, the intubation part of this, and again, people are very familiar with what we just went through is that this is, this becomes an endless cycle. It becomes right. in and of itself a cycle that, and, and, and in a lot of cases where it ends up becoming the very cause of death for for the people in that position. Right. And, and that was, go ahead. No, go ahead. That was my concern with the sedatives, right? Mm -hmm. it's like exactly. Just, I was going to yeah, bring up. up, up she can't breathe. Yeah. Up she can't exactly. breathe. Let's let's put it back in, and then we're mega dosing all these, you know, sedatives because she she has a high tolerance for them, and none of them are working, and then it just becomes this round robin. Well, don't you think there's also a potential co consequence, especially for such a small child? of being intubated and then also being on things like fentanyl and morphine yeah. that actually have yeah. an effect. Like, isn't that, isn't there a risk of that in and of itself being a dangerous right. situation? Right. And even at one point they um, administered, you know, I, I pushed it off as long as I could the night of the morphine and the outer acts back and forth um, of, uh, of antipsychotic. Like my <laughs> child does should not need an antipsychotic from your, life-saving treatments right yeah. so just real alarm um and you know i do believe that yesterday i i demanded that we you know safely i don't want her to experience withdrawals but safely wean her off the sedatives because yeah. i do think that that is much more likely to get her back on and now you know today they um did put in the feeding tube and um you know they're claiming that she's improving because she's got the feeding tube back in and I'm saying, no, she's just not full of morphine, fentanyl, propofol, exactly. Presidex and Ativan. Yeah. What a shock. You removed the, the things th they're supposed to be giving her, helping her and she gets better. And that's because of the treatment itself. Yeah. You know, yeah, that that's infuriating. So, you know, I, I think, so right now you're in a position where you're insecure. You don't know whether or not the case itself is going to be used to try to take further action and, and take your child away or remove your ability to give her, to be in charge of her care. Right? right. So that's where you're at right now in the hospital, right. in the bathroom for worry that if you leave, you might not be let back in. I mean, yeah. you know, we're, so what we're talking about in a general sense is the concept of medical kidnapping and how that can be used dishonestly or from a, a place of honesty, even if they're, in, you know, if they're incorrect, they may think they're doing the right thing and do the wrong thing in that way. But my point is that where you're at right now in and of itself is essentially a level of that anyway. Let me ask right. you this. If right now you decided you wanted to go and take her to another hospital, would they let you? Do you think they would let you? Well, I, I don't. And it is interesting that, you know, I actually said when I wanted to file the grievance that we wanted to transfer hospitals. And I was right. told that the other hospital actually interviews this hospital staff. Then they interview us and then they decide whether or not they take us. So obviously, if they're interviewing the staff, like we're just going to wind up stuck anyway. And right. so I don't know. I, I don't know that it's an option, even if the staff would let me, if anyone reading the notes would be willing, you yeah. know, I mean, that, that's a, that, I mean, that's frust That's another level of frustration there and just, right. I, I control, but I mean more to the sense of I'm, I would be willing to bet you now with, with the, the, I forget the name you said of the, of the, the ruling from the court, the minute, the minute, order. Whatever, the minute order, uh, 
because of that, that if you simply said and have every right to do, by the way, that you just want to have you want to bring it to another hospital, you don't like their For conduct, second opinion, that, yeah. that they probably would not let that happen right now. And right. my that's right. my opinion. But my right. point is that I don't know how we got to this place where we're in a position where through the, you know, either again, believing you're doing the right thing or just feigned good intentions. We've gotten to a place where we're losing control of what we believe is the foundation of all this, your informed consent, your, your, your ability to make decisions for your, your wards, your children, your people that are under your care. You know, it's the same thing in reverse. And I just, it, it, it's terrifying to me that we are in this position. And, you know, I hope that this right here can get more attention to this, that we can get more awareness of what you're going through. And I'd like to put out a call right now to anybody listening, anybody out there that is interested in this, who is a lawyer who believes that you have some insight into this, reach out to me and let's get you guys connected because it's just, it's, I think that in positions like this, people who don't have the resources or are perceived not to, whether that be being wildly rich or having the no insight with people in power that you get taken advantage of. They really, they feel like they can pressure and lean and make these things happen. And that's not something that anybody should be okay with. I mean, it's, it's, but well, any, let's end today. Cause I, I fully intend with bringing you back on and having okay. a follow-up and talking okay. about this again, because I want to know what happens and with this. And I think that people have a right to know how this is being conducted with the dishonesty we're talking about here. Where do you want to leave us with in this conversation? Where, what are your thoughts right now? And, and you know, what do you think is going to happen? And what are your calls for people listening? Do you, do you have the audience. So what would you like to ask them? Yeah, I mean, uh, the continued legal support is important for us. I know that uh, Remnant Nursing has been helping to kind of field some of that for us. Um, and then, uh, you know, just praying for our family. And, and people have been calling the hospital to let them know that we are not in a vacuum, that the world is watching, and right. and that other people are uh, concerned about Autumn's health and her care. Absolutely. Well, I know this is probably impossible to talk about. I know it's been difficult. I'm, you know, yeah. I, 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 I commend your courage and you. anything happens, please reach out and we will follow up on this. And if anything, anybody reaches out in regard to counsel or anything else, we'll be in contact and okay. I, I wish you the best and just okay. know that you have support from, as you just said, I mean, I think for a long time now, things have been shifting in my opinion, but I think post the last kind of few years, or yeah, post the last few years that people are realizing that we need to stick together more than ever, that people, we need to take, you know, spread the word, stand up, say something about it, call the hospital, do whatever you think is necessary out there in within the law, obviously to, to better her situation or better others that are in this situation, spread the word. So thank you for your courage. And I look forward to talking with you again. Okay. Thank you so much for sharing Autumn's story. Yeah, absolutely. And as always, everybody out there question, everything come to your own conclusions, stay vigilant.